0: is preaching. And, uh, you know, we had zero visitors. We had zero attendance. And uh, last Wednesday night, you know, I was telling you, if I could possibly get here, I'll be here. Hey, the highway was shut down and I had no helicopter. So nobody made it, but uh, God is good. And uh, he's taking care of us and let's pray together. And we're going to connect the dots tonight and we're going to finish out Believe it or not, the exciting Pentateuch. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name that you will open our understanding and feed us. For you, Lord, said that your word was like milk that we grow thereby. And you said your word was like meat that feeds our souls. You said your word was like a fire, that it was like a hammer that, Lord, it was that which builds and ignites and inspires and increases our faith. And we pray that tonight you will increase our faith. Would you just breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, tonight increase my faith and give me the wisdom of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him God heard that prayer. Yes, he did. All right, we're going through the Old Testament. Now, this is the sixth week, but the first couple of weeks, we really weren't going through any of the books. We were setting up what we were about to do and going over some um, fundamentals of the Scriptures of understanding the Bible, how it was put together, uh, how the canon was put together, and so on and so forth. Every believer ought to know that. Every believer ought to understand how the Bible came to be, how it was put together, how it was comprised, who did it, when it was done. We need to understand the Word of God. And so last time we began an overview overview of uh, Genesis and Exodus. Now, if you'll remember, Genesis is the book of beginnings. You want to talk about beginnings? Everything began in the beginning of Genesis. Everything. Beginning of creation, the beginning of sin. The beginning of God's plan of redemption, Genesis 3.15, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The beginning of judgment, God's fierce judgment by the great flood. We don't like to talk about the judgment of God, but let me assure you, God judges. And read the book of Revelation if you think he's done judging. You will see that he's not. And the world that rejects Christ is in for one ferocious judgment in the days to come. But in the beginning in Genesis, you see the first one, the great flood. And it was universal, and it was a historic event. It really happened. And then you have the beginning of ethnicities. Did you know that? The beginning of ethnicities was at the Tower of Babel. When God scattered the people by confusing their languages because they were talking to each other, and all of a sudden, everybody was saying, what, in their own language? And because they couldn't communicate anymore, they scattered And as they were forced to scatter, the ethnicities came to be. So you have the beginning of the ethnicities at the Tower of Babel. So remember, four major events in Genesis. you remember what they are? The creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. Let's try that again. Y'all seem sleepy tonight. Are you sleepy? Let's try it again. All right? The creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Then in Genesis 12 verse 1 with the call of Abram, we have the beginning of God working out his plan, the plan of redemption that he promised in Genesis 3:15. When he said to the devil, you are going to be at war with the seed of the woman. He is going to bruise your heel and no, he is going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. So the devil was told, you're going to, you're going to wound the seed of the woman in the heel, but he's going to give you a death blow to the head. Now that's Genesis 3.15. That's God's promise right there in the beginning of the fall of man, God promising, I'm going to redeem you and, uh, and I'm going to destroy the work of the devil. Now that begins getting worked out in Genesis 1 with the call of Abram and the Abrahamic covenant. And God giving him all of the promises he gave him, you're going to be a great nation. Through you, all the uh, nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And out of you is going to come Messiah. We saw that eventually there was Isaac and then there was Jacob and the 12 tribes. And out of the 12 tribes, Judah was chosen to be the one that would bring forth Messiah. Hence, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of where? Judah. Alrighty, now Exodus is the book of departure where God's people, having been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, are miraculously delivered by God at the hand of Moses. So Genesis beginnings, Exodus departure. Now we come to Leviticus. Doesn't that sound boring right off the bat? Leviticus. But you've got to know what it means. In Leviticus, here's what happens God's people, can I just say this? I've been going through the Bible and. um. I have found that even the genealogies so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot begot, so-and-so. If you pay careful attention, truce will pop out at you because even the genealogies are the word of God. Okay? Now, in Leviticus, God's people are led out of slavery and brought to Mount Sinai. It's referred to as the law of the priest. Notice, Levite, Leviticus. So, Leviticus, We could almost say, just to make it clear, Leviticus, Leviticus, the Levites. It's the law of the priests, the Levites. It literally means pertaining to the Levites or that which pertains to the Levites, Leviticus, okay? uh, Who were the Levites? They were members of Aaron's family and they were responsible for helping the priests in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the medium through which God dwelled among his people. He dwelled in the tabernacle. And the priests were the intermediaries between God and his people. They stood between God and the people and made offerings for the people. They were the the mediators. Now, that is what is meant by a priest. When you talk about somebody being a priest, then it is a mediator between God and man. Now, let me ask you a question Are you a priest? Let me ask you again, are you a priest? All of you, if you're a believer, you ought to say yes, because you are a chosen generation, Peter said, a royal priesthood that you would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what does that tell us? That means that every believer is an intermediary between God and man in that we pray for people, we witness to people, We believe God to touch the lives of people. Right now, I am acting as a priest between God and you to give you the Word of God. But every believer is part of the royal priesthood of the New Testament. So you're all called. Not just me. You're all called. Can you turn to your neighbor and tell them, well, I believe I'm called. Come on, come on. Everybody looking up at me. Don't tell me. I know. Tell your neighbor. (laughs) That's what it's meant to be a priest. You're you're an intermediary. You stand in between. Now, it's a rich picture that we'll dive into more later. But primarily, this is a book about holiness. Leviticus is about holiness. And, And Scripture says in other places, "...without which no man will see the Lord." Okay? So holiness is not some boring, well, you never go have any fun, you never party, you never have any laughter you're just living this boring, holy life. No. Holiness is actually what positions you and postures you for the life and the peace of God. Holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Over 90 times, holiness, be holy this is holy, or I am holy, are mentioned in Leviticus. So clearly Leviticus is all about holiness. It's also a book about sacrifice. Now catch this. Now remember, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Now I want you to catch that. The Old Testament is types and shadows and figures of what was coming in the New Testament as realities. Okay? So you will see God early on setting up his people, teaching them, prepping them, giving them show and tell so that when Jesus finally came and died on the cross for their sins, they fully got it. They fully understood all that the Old Testament had been leading up to. Because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It, the New Testament, we look at the New Testament, the New Covenant, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and the Old Testament makes total sense. In order to come before a holy God, there had to be a sacrifice to make the way for that to happen. Okay? What we're seeing set up in Leviticus is the necessity of a sacrifice. So God's teaching His people there's going to have to be a sacrifice. It's going to have to be a blood sacrifice. I'm teaching you that the only way your sin's ever going to be dealt with is by a sacrifice. In order for sinful man who is not holy to approach a holy God, there was a sacrifice. And that's huge. Now, as we talk about this, you do see the importance of it connecting the dots to Jesus Christ and His cross. Folks, our nation... Our world does not understand this, that you can't psychoanalyze your guilt away. You can't deny your guilt away. You can't snort it or smoke it or drink it away. You can't choose the God of your choosing to get rid of the guilt of your sin and mine. It's got to be what God orders. And in Leviticus, that's what he's showing us. He said, you're going to have to, there's going to have to be a sacrifice for your sin. Now, there are two main sections as you study Leviticus. The first 17 chapters, the first half, talks about fellowship with God through ritual offerings. It talks about the offerings the people of God were to do. And the different designated times the people of God were to give these offerings with accompanying celebrations, and I could have gone into all the feasts and offerings, but suffice it, because we're skipping over these books, suffice it to say, first seventeen chapters are all about God's leading His people to make certain offerings to bring about certain results in God's eyes. The last part, Leviticus eighteen through twenty-seven, talks about fellowship with God through righteous living. Now, that's not just about giving your offerings. It's about walking with God and obeying Him. Obeying Him. Okay? There's a lot of meaning there for us today. It's not just about bringing your songs, but it's about giving your lives. You'll find that in Leviticus. See, in Leviticus, you realize the seriousness of sin. And that it's so serious, something's got to die to cover it. Something innocent has to die to cover your sin and mine. And then you're going to see that once that sin has been covered, God expects us then to obey Him and walk with Him. So we, we jump down, for instance, to Romans 12, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a what kind of sacrifice? Living sacrifice, which is what? Holy and acceptable Unto him, which is your reasonable servant. If he, for in light of what God has done for you and me, Leviticus says, in light of these animals being killed and blood being shed for your sin to be covered, God expects obedience. How much more so when the Lamb of God, Christ Himself, has died? Should we then give our lives back to Him? It's reasonable. Okay. It's not just about rituals we do in our church culture. It's about walking with God on a daily basis. Leviticus has meaning for us today. It has a lot of meaning. Now, there's one chapter. It's a key chapter, and here's what it is. It's Leviticus 16. Why? Because in, in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is observed. And atone here literally means to cover. Atonement means to cover up, to cover That word is used 45 times in Leviticus, cover. Now, let me tell you something about this word. Here's why we're in a superior covenant. Because in the Old Testament, we're going to see this in a minute, their sin was covered, but it wasn't taken away. It was covered, but it wasn't removed. In the New Testament, our sin is totally washed away. But this is the beginning of God teaching His people. Now, uh, it's very, very important. Somehow, Leviticus shows us our sin had to be covered. It was covered on this Day of Atonement. It was covered on the Day of Covering, is what you could call the Day of Atonement. The Day of Covering. Now, there were two necessary elements on the Day of Atonement. You had to have two things. You had to have a bold priest, and you had to have a blood sacrifice. Okay? Thank God, in the New Testament, we have a bold priest, a bold high priest who never shrunk away from telling people the truth and finally gave his life on the cross. His name is Jesus Christ. So we have a bold priest and we have a better sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you had, in the Old Testament, had to have a bold priest and a blood sacrifice. By a bold priest, I mean the high priest would go into the presence of God at this designated time, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, and he would have to wear bells on his feet so when he walked, you could hear them, ring a ling a ling a here comes the high priest. Now why? Because he went into the, when he went into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, with a blood sacrifice, everybody standing outside would listen closely to make sure he was still moving and you could still hear the bells. Because if he made one mistake, God struck him dead. And if there's no more ringing of the bells, there's trouble. He's dead. So I guess he kind of kept it going just to assure the people outside because the the, the the Shekinah presence of God was so serious it was such a serious thing so he would go in there and that's what was happening with Zacharias when he went in and the angel appeared and told him about John the Baptist being born and the people began to get nervous because he didn't come out they were wondering if he died one little slip Psh! I guarantee you there were not a lot of people running for the office of high priest. Now, to make sure he had not been struck down in the presence of God, they, 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 they would listen for the tinkling of the bell. Now, can you imagine the tension of that scene? Can you imagine if you're the wife of the husband and of that high priest, you're, you're the wife of that high priest, and he's gone in and he tarries? Can you imagine the tension? A blood sacrifice was needed to cover the people's sins. Now, let's not miss the practical Application and significance found in Leviticus. First, can you say with me, "God God is holy? Folks, God is holy. And there is a difference between the holy and the sacred and the common. I have noticed in our day, in the American culture, people are totally losing sight of the distinction between the sacred and the common. You can tell by the way they, they act in church. One, one Sunday, I'm preaching along, and I hear this, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And I looked around, looked over, and here's a little, little kid standing over by one of the walls, hitting a red rubber ball up against the wall. And, you know, I thought, well, surely his mom's going to catch that. But his mom's just looking right at me. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. Finally, I had to say something. I felt like being the heavy, but I had to be the heavy. And when I said something, she got mad, stormed out, grabbed the kid. And Now, here's what it said to me. They thought they were in McDonald's. But they were in the house of God with God moving and people being fed and people being convicted and and the Spirit of God. So we've got to get back to there is a difference between the holy and the sacred and the common That's free. That wasn't in my notes. And that was a while back, so don't worry about the woman. They're long gone. Long, 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 long gone. Now, God is holy. And I talked so long, I I lost this. Help me here, Tyler. It's not working. You know, y'all, one of these, there we go. Leviticus teaches us that if we are going to bring something to God, it had better be worthy of bringing it to God. He is holy. The implications are profound. Can I give this to you, Tyler, and we'll work with this? Listen, you don't bring junk to God. You don't bring trash. Can you run that back to him, George? Thank you. All right. You don't bring junk. You don't bring trash. You don't bring second best to God. And you don't bring that which costs you nothing in the presence of God. That's why it says when you come into his presence, worship him in spirit and in truth. Let it mean something. You don't offer him meaningless sacrifices. He's holy. Can we say that again? He's holy. He deserves much more than that. He deserves a worthy sacrifice. Now, second, sin is serious. Now let's say that together, can we? Sin is serious. Oh, it's so serious. Sin is so serious because the moment sin happens, we are separated from God. We are in a broken relationship with God. Leviticus teaches us that sin before God is very, very costly. It is serious. Now, finally, we see that God is gracious. When you take the first two together, God is holy and sin is serious. And that's not a good picture because if he's holy and sin is serious and I'm a sinner, where does that leave me? Well, you get to the third truth and you see God providing the blood to atone and cover our sins. Thank God for God's mercies. It then begins to unfold what God has done in each of our lives. With all these uh, observances, uh, God was preparing his people for the day that the final ultimate sacrifice would be offered. Let's say it together. Jesus Christ on the cross. How many of you are glad for Jesus tonight? Amen? Amen. Is it working? Hallelujah. Y'all give Tyler a hand. He's, he, there we go. Everything before that was simply show and tell. Types and shadows of the final Lamb of God. Now I want you to, to listen to this. A little bit lengthy, but excellent explanation from Hebrews, uh, because with Jesus Christ on the cross, that was the, the apex of everything God had been pointing to all through the Old Testament. Look at this passage, Hebrews 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves, but a preview. So animal blood was not what God was ultimately going for, but the blood of Christ. The animal blood was a preview. The blood of Christ was the grand finale. Okay? He goes on. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again and again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. You were not perfectly cleansed, like we are by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 2, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, then the sacrifices would have stopped. But they didn't stop because the people were not perfectly cleansed. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, here's what happened. Those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Every year for that Day of Atonement, they were reminded, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven again, I have not been forgiven forever. This has to happen over and over and over again, repeated. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, here's what he said to God, quote, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings but you have given watch this you have given me a body to offer you know what that is that's God talking to God that's God the Son talking to God the Father saying you gave me a human body so that I could offer it wow That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. The whole reason it happened was so that God the Father could give God the Son a body to sacrifice. I could park right there and preach the rest of the night. You have given me a body to offer. Verse 6. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God. This is Jesus talking. I've come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the Scriptures. And what was the will of God? That he would give the body that God the Father gave him as a sacrifice for our sins. Wow. Deep and heavy and profound stuff. First, verse 8. Verse 8 says, first, Christ said, You didn't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. They did not really do it, though they are required by the law of Moses. Verse 9, then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. Verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice. We need to read this together. This is so good. Are you ready? Here's Christmas in verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Now, if you want a phrase, uh, the most recognizable phrase in the book of Hebrews is right there, once for all. Can we say it together? Once for all. That is the key phrase in Hebrews. Hebrews 9.28 says the same thing. Quote, so also Christ died once for all as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Amen. Christ has paid a high price on the cross, folks. A high price to remove our sins. And if we want to understand the price of the cross, we've got to study the book of uh, Leviticus. If the cross doesn't mean anything to us, then we can leave Leviticus alone. But if the cross is the center of our faith, and it is, then we have to study the book of Leviticus to see how important it was. Amen. Now, everybody say Leviticus is done. Let's look at numbers. People say to me, why do you, why do you talk about numbers? God doesn't care about numbers. And I say, well, there's a book called <laughs> Numbers. It is named the number for the census account that you see in Numbers 1 through 4 and later in Numbers 26 through 27. If you read Numbers 1 through 4, it's just... It's just an endless census, just people and armies and who was in them and who was a part of what family. And it's this long, long census. It's a count, okay? It is the census that is taken of God's people as they're leaving Mount Sinai, a count of God's people. Remember, they're taken across the Red Sea, delivered out of Egypt. When they get on the other side of the sea, they immediately go to Mount Sinai where Moses had originally seen that burning bush. And there, God says, I want you to count the people. I want you to see how many came out of Egypt with you so you can know how many you're taking across this vast wilderness. So they counted the people. The overarching message of Numbers is that God honors faith and he punishes unbelief. That's the message of Numbers. God honors faith. How many of you know that's true? What does it say in Hebrews? Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Boy, I've hung my hat on that verse so many times. And God punishes unbelief. It's a fact. Which is the root of sin. Show me a time in your life or mine when we sinned, and I'll show you the root of it was unbelief. The root of it was unbelief. God's not going to take care of me, so I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I've got needs, and God doesn't. God didn't take any note of it, so I'm going to take care of it myself. Uh, You know, show me a sin, and I'll show you the root of it is unbelief. Now, Numbers teaches us that unbelief is a lack of trust in God's word. If you want to know what it is in a nutshell, that's it. Unbelief is a lack of trust in God's word. That's why the enemy is always seeking to undermine God's word in your mind. If he can undermine God's word, you lose trust in God. It was all the back to the Garden of Eden. Eve, has God said, are you sure? And she doubted God's word and fell. Why are we doing this series? Because I want you to be totally confident in God's word. Now, this is exemplified in what happens in Numbers 13 through 14. Look at this. They leave Mount Sinai and were given the promise to go into the land. You're going to go into the promised land, I'm going to bless you, land flowing with milk and honey and all that good stuff. They come to the very edge and they see it. And what happens? They send men to spy out the land. They come back and the majority vote says, we better not go. Goes to show you the majority is not always right. Because two of 12 said, Oh, no, 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 we can do it, we can do it. Joshua and Caleb, we can do it. But 10 of the 12 said, No way, there's giants over there, they'll kill us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight, they're gonna take us down. Moses has brought us into a death trap. We don't believe God's gonna give it to us. Well, what happened? They, They continued, They're too strong, they're too big, they're too powerful. We don't think we can do it, blah, 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 blah. They talked a million people out of crossing over and inheriting their promise. The result is they come so close to the promised land, but because of their unbelief, they turn back. Anytime you start disbelieving God, you're going towards the Lord, you're going towards His promises. The minute you begin to disbelieve, you turn back. And here's Egypt. The world, the flesh, your own ways, your own ideas, wrong decisions. But when you begin to believe God, you always return to following Him. They turn back. And they missed out on the land that God had promised them. Missed it. An entire generation misses out because of unbelief and a lack of trust in God's Word. Now, let me just pause right here and let me ask you a question. What is God asking you to believe right now in your personal life and the enemy is attacking it, but you know it's God's Word and you're in a battle over this? Think about it for a moment. What is God asking you to do? It's very simple. Believe my Word. That's it not complicated it's not some deep platonic philosophy just believe my word did I not say unto you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God Jesus said in John 11 did I not tell you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God that's the core of sin the root of sin is unbelief a lack of trust in God's word now Throughout this book of Numbers, you're going to see six main failures of God's people between the two censuses that are taken. Census taken at the beginning, census taken at the end. You're going to see them complaining. Anybody in here complained yet this year? (laughs) Let me see. Okay. Isn't complaining easy? Isn't it so easy to complain? Now, I'm going to tell you, I fall into that trap more than any other time. I'm I'm being transparent with you in rush hour traffic. I talk to the city leaders in rush hour traffic. How did you not plan more than two lanes? I mean, I, I talk to them. I don't know who they are, but I'm talking to them. I complain. I complain about the people around me. If I'm not careful, I will slip and go deep into the pit of complaining. But it was way more serious here in the wilderness. They are complaining. And Paul said that because they complained. They were buried in the wilderness. Very serious. They rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. Complained. They rebelled. And Kadesh Barnea is the encampment where they looked into the promised land and said, we can't do it. And then they also rebelled at Korah's rebellion. Remember when the ground opened up and swallowed the rebels and closed in on them again? Wow. Even Moses disobeyed God. And experienced judgment by not being able to go into the promised land. Can you imagine that? Carrying a million complaining, griping people across a wilderness for 40 years to a promised land. And then you can't go in? (laughs) That's terrible. Terrible. But it happened to him. Then there's more complaining in Numbers 21, 1 through 35. You can read about it if you want to. That's a very interesting passage of Scripture. The story of the bronze serpent and how God brought salvation in a very unusual way to his people. If you just look at the serpent on the bronze pole, if you look at that bronze serpent, then you will be healed of snake bite. And it's a picture of Christ on the cross and us being healed of the snake bite of sin. Then there was adultery and immorality in Numbers 25, 1 through 18, when they went into sexual sin with the people of Moab. In the book of Numbers, you see the failures of God's people over and over again. And and what it shows you is why we needed a Savior. Because they can't keep God's Word. They fail every time. In Numbers, it's just over and over again. They did did it again, 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 did it again. It's the constant cycle. They're on a hamster's wheel of futility and failure and getting nowhere. It's really interesting when you get an overview of the book of Numbers to see the price of unbelief revealed in the geography of their journey and the time frames involved. <clears throat> There's several key places. Let me show them to you quickly. We have them at Sinai in Numbers chapter 1. Okay, just get it going there, Judy, or whoever's back there. All right then they journey to Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 10. Next, they're encamped at Kadesh in Numbers 13. And then they journey to Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 10, 11, uh, 10, 11 through 13 and 25. Next, they're encamped at Kadesh in Numbers. And then they turn back and return to Moab in Numbers 20. And finally, they encamped again at Moab in Numbers 22. Now, what does all that tell us? If you were to look at a map, That was the geography of God's people. When you look at the geography on a map, you're going to see it was a circle. They were walking in circles. In futile, meaningless, frustrating circles. Never learning their lesson. I don't know about you folks, but if I have a goal, I want a straight line between me and that goal. And I want to get to it. But if I've got a goal, and because of my own disobedience, all I'm doing is walking in circles, oh, man, to me, that would be hell. Matter of fact, forget the burning, fiery flames. If I'm walking in futile circles, that would be hell for me. But do you know that there's a lot of believers that live that way? They're walking in circles. They never learn their lesson, and so they return And they return, and they return to learn the same thing and with God hoping that this time he or she will be obedient. How many of you, let me put it this way, how many of you have ever experienced returning to the same mountain and having to walk around it again? Come on, tell the truth. Okay, you bet. So they're a perfect example of that. They're just walking in circles. And then you see the time frame. Numbers 1 through 10 last about 20 days. Numbers 11 through 14 last about 70 days. Numbers 15 through 20 last about, oh, ouch, how long? 38 years walking in circles. An entire generation misses out. Now, finally, numbers 21 through 36 last about five months. That's amazing to me. So we know from just looking at the map, they could have made it in two weeks. But it took 40 years, and then they didn't make it anyway. The whole first generation died, and the second generation crossed over. They wanted for 40 years for the price of their unbelief. But God is faithful despite his people's failures. He still led them. He did not let them go back. They said, "Let, let us go back to Egypt, but he did not let them go back to Egypt. He is faithful And I think of the verse, faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. We will see that he's going to accomplish his purpose through the next generation. But boy, that first generation traveled 40 years for nothing. They died on the other side. Isn't that, how many of you can say that's depressing? Isn't that depressing? It's like when you're out on the ice this week and your tires are spinning and you're getting nowhere. You're getting nowhere. Now, I'm going to confess to you. I went out and had a little fun because I'm from New York. I went and did a little spinning. Not where I could have gotten in a wreck or endanger anybody. I had this little place I went to and I spun. I know you're having a hard time picturing this. But I did it. And, and it, there's nothing more frustrating than getting stuck in that ice and you're giving it everything you got, but you're not getting anywhere. That's Israel. They were doing everything. They weren't getting anywhere, just spinning their wheels. Deuteronomy gets a little bit better, and we're going to finish with Deuteronomy. Once Numbers finishes, we're ready to go into the promised land. We have the second law, which is basically restating the law to the new generation in preparation for the promised land. Moses has to rehash what he's already been over. It's a rehearsal of the covenant as they prepare for the promised land. It is not a new covenant. The covenant had been given in Exodus. In Leviticus, we saw the terms of that covenant, the laws, the ritual living, the righteous living, the ritual offerings and whatnot. In Numbers, they wander around and miss out so that there's now a need for renewal. They've got to be reminded of what God had promised them, a rehearsal of what the covenant's all about. Now, some of the things that we see are things we've seen before. God is bringing it back to his people. In Deuteronomy, we see how the law applies to all of God's people. In Leviticus, we saw how the law applied to the Levites, who were the leaders. In Deuteronomy, you have all the people of God preparing to go into the promised land, and the law applies to all of them. And as you study, it would be good to memorize what is called the Shema. Can you say with me the Shema? The Shema is an affirmation of Judaism and a declaration of faith. This is very important, church. Now, what we're about to go into is doctrine. What you believe about God. Now, what are we told in the Shema? Well, an Orthodox Jew, get this, it was so important that he was obligated to quote the Shema in the morning and at night, according to Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. He had to quote it twice a day. The Shema. Moses commanded, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as reminders. What's he talking about? The commands of God, the word of God. Surround yourself with it. Now, you may already know it, but the Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and Jesus said it was the greatest commandment. So let's read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's read on. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength jesus called that the greatest commandment now back to the beginning of the shema what did he say the lord our god the lord is one now what this is this is the doctrine of the trinity can everybody say with me the trinity now you say well why would it even matter do you know that in the history of the church there have been gigantic controversies splits in the church arguments fights killings over the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity, what the Shema says, the Lord our God is one, yet He is of three persons. He is of one essence, but He is of three persons. Very important. Listen carefully now. When heresy entered the church in the past, it so often had to do with Jesus being less than God. Jesus was a less than God the Father. He was not actually God. He had some divinity. He brought the Word of God, but he was not equal to God. And neither was the Holy Spirit. But here is the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, all three are equal God. Catch this now. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Who's the Word? It's Jesus, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, Jesus. The Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. Cults invariably marginalize and sell Jesus short. Cults always degrade the godness of Jesus Christ. Mormons do it. Jehovah's Witnesses do it. the the major cults that have rocked the church for the centuries always attack the person and the godness of Jesus Christ. So I want to just make it clear to you tonight, here at Turning Point, we are firmly rooted in the Bible truth, the Trinitarian truth, that you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. It doesn't mean God is split up into three parts. It means God is three distinct personalities, but is still one essence. Okay? It says in the book of Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. Well, who's the us? That's plural. Who's he talking to? It's the Godhead talking amongst each other. The Holy Ghost Church is not a force, as in Star Wars. The force be with you. The the Holy Ghost is not an impersonal, some kind of metaphysical force. The Holy Ghost is God the Holy Ghost. He is a distinct personality with emotions, feelings, A will, God the Son, a distinct personality with emotions and a will, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, co equal. Three in one. Don't ask me to intellectually explain it. I just accept it by faith because this is what the Bible says. I mean look at you body, soul, mind, will, and emotions, spirit. There's three parts of you, but you are you you are one. Okay. So so God was not split up into three parts, and 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 so you got a kind of a schizophrenic God. You know, and, and God is one essence, three distinct persons. And anybody that ever teaches you anything else, you need to get out of there. Because good men and good women throughout church history died for this truth. That's where we get the creeds. That's why so many of the creeds were were written in answer to these various heresies, especially and almost always attacking the person of Jesus Christ. When when Jesus looked at you, God was looking at you. (laughs) I mean, this heavy stuff. But in Hebrews, we read it. He said, thank you, God the Father, for giving me, God the Son, a body to sacrifice. Wow. That was a key part of the Old Testament for the people of God. It unfolds in three facets. First, there's one God. There is one God which separated Israel from all the nations that were about to go into polytheistic, pagan nations. We are living right now, folks, in a polytheistic country. There are so many gods in America now. It's crazy. But our God is one God, and He's the true God. Second, there is one Word, the Word given them by God through Moses. At that time, this Word is the means by which one can know the one God. So we have one God, we have one Word. Finally, there is one love. It's not that the love of God had not been known before in the Old Testament, but it really begins to show up and unfold in Deuteronomy. Look for Israel's anticipation of the land and their commitment to the covenant in Deuteronomy. Everything is changing. You've got an entirely new generation. You have a new challenge before them. You have a new leader, Joshua. And this is something new for the people of God because Moses previously led them. Now there is a new leader, new temptations they're going to face, and everything is new. So read Deuteronomy closely. It's the most quoted book in the Bible. Did you know that? Deuteronomy. Quoted 356 times in the Bible. 190 times in the New Testament alone. If you want to understand the Bible, it's good to know Deuteronomy. It is the spring or the fountainhead of Old Testament theology beginning with the Lord our God is one God okay gives us a picture that's going to unfold throughout the remaining history of God's people as he interacts with them if you want to see the river of God's revelation in the Old Testament then know Deuteronomy can we stand together oh man we got into some good theology tonight folks good doctrine next time The Dynamic Dozen, the next 12 books of the Bible, and it's good stuff. How many of you are glad you came tonight? (laughs) All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now that the Lord our God is one God, and we thank you, Lord, for that Trinity, God the Father, God the begotten Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one, We praise you for it. Thank you for it. Let's lift our hands to him tonight.